Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 1st of February. Professor Rainer McIntyre presents an update that includes comments on the rollout strategy, the South African and Brazilian variants, and why they are significant, and some of the consequences of the denial by Australian authorities of the airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2, especially in a hotel quarantine setting. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Professor McIntyre, could you tell us about yourself? Um, I'm a um, researcher in infectious diseases at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Um, a medic, I'm a physician and uh, I've trained in epidemiology and public health. Um, and my research is around epidemics, pandemics and emerging infections. Raina, Australia is about to reopen all our state borders and New South Wales restrictions are being rolled back. How do you think we've gone this time? Look, overall, we've done very well. We're extremely fortunate, you know, to live in Australia. Having said that, WA has just gone into lockdown until Friday. Um, they've had a case of the B117 variant from the UK in a hotel quarantine, a security guard, and uh, they're being highly precautionary and going into lockdown tonight. We might come back and touch on those issues in a minute. Uh, I, I thought that I might just go straight out and ask you your thoughts on the vaccine rollout strategy. How's it going in your mind? Um, well, it's very good news that it, the timeline was brought forward a bit. You know, originally it was going to start at the end of March. Um, and the concern is these variant strains are spreading all over the world, you know, from emerging in Brazil, in South Africa, and the UK. And that's almost like a brand new pandemic, you know. Mm -hmm. um, We've seen in Manaus in Brazil, for example, uh, um, you know, it looks like 75% of people got infected in the first wave last year, and yet mm -hmm. they're still having major infection, you know, major epidemic going on at the moment with this new variant. And it looks like having been infected previously does not protect you. So the landscape has changed. So I think the government recognised that and brought the start of the vaccine program forward to um, mid-February. So we should mm -hmm. expect to see it start uh, in a couple of weeks, which is oh. very good. Um, they've also sorted out the priority groups. And I think the way it's been sorted is pretty good. Uh, 1A is the um, people at the greatest risk of getting infected, which includes hotel quarantine staff, um, certain health professionals, not all. So it will be people working in ICU and emergency, mm -hmm. uh, also paramedics. Mm -hmm. So say anaesthetists, um, doctors working on respiratory wards, et cetera, won't be included and nor will GPs, not in 1A. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll be in 1B. Uh, and my understanding is um, one most people in 1B, including Indigenous people, will be getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. Only people in 1A will be getting the Pfizer vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the rationale behind that? 
Well, the Pfizer vaccine, um, we've only got, I think, a contract for 10 million doses, which is um, enough for 5 million people. So there's a restriction on the available doses, um, whereas the AstraZeneca vaccine can be manufactured and will be manufactured in Australia at CSL. So, uh, and that's going to be the largest component of the stockpile. Have we come to terms with what actually the AstraZeneca vaccine does? Um, I, I guess there's a whole lot of questions being asked about the two percentages of efficacy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, basically the Pfizer, Novavax, sorry, the Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca trials were completed when the dominant strain in the world was the strain that was around last year, <laughs> which emerged after the original Wuhan strain was more contagious than the Wuhan strain. The vaccines were essentially, some of the vaccines were actually developed to match the original Wuhan strain, but others to the um, other strain that was circulating. So that's telling us about effectiveness against last year's pandemic. Um, And really the landscape has changed with these new variants. I can touch on that in a minute. But to compare those three vaccines, which were the first three to have phase three trials published, um, they all reported the efficacy against symptomatic infection, which included you know, any symptom plus um, a diagnosis, a laboratory diagnosis mm-hmm. of SARS-CoV-2. And Pfizer was 95% effective, Moderna 94%, and AstraZeneca was 62% effective. Mm-hmm. The figure you might have heard about 70% is when they combined data from uh, people from South Africa who accidentally got um, the wrong dose. They got a low dose and then the standard dose, but it was also spaced out for much longer, up to three months between doses, um, as opposed to four weeks between doses in the people in the UK in that trial. So it's really not valid to be talking about, to be using those efficacy data. We need to look at the efficacy reported on the people who got the intended dose at the intended spacing. Mm-hmm. And that was 62%. And these are all, as you said, on the previous strain. I, I guess what I'm concerned about, Raina, is that twice now you've said we are facing a very different picture because of all these different strains. C- can you just give us, GPs, an idea of how these different strains really will affect our strategy and where we're going with it? So the first of these strains emerged in September last year, which was in the UK. It's called B117, and it is estimated to be up to 70% more infectious or contagious than the previous strain. Um, And initially it was thought it wasn't uh, any, there was no difference in severity, but more recent data suggests it actually is more severe. And then we saw um, a strain appear in South Africa and Brazil, and all three have emerged independently of each other. Uh-huh. Um, they all have the same mutation that the UK strain has, but the strains in Brazil and South Africa have mutations in two other regions. And it's all around the spike protein, which is the antigen mm. that is targeted by the vaccines. We've just seen data, not published data, but data released from the manufacturers on two vaccines, the Novavax, which is in uh-huh. our Um, planned stockpile. We don't have a lot of it um, in the stockpile. It's uh, quite a small number of doses, but it is part of our plan. 
and also the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So the Johnson and Johnson is similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine in that it's vectored on an adenovirus that does not replicate. Um, the, the AstraZeneca one is a chimpanzee adenovirus. The Johnson and Johnson is a human adenovirus 26. And both the Johnson and Johnson and the Novavax trials, and Novavax is a protein subunit vaccine, mm-hmm. um, showed reduced efficacy against the South African strain. Both of those studies were conducted at a time when the South African mutant was circulating. And that's the first clinical efficacy data we've seen Mm -hmm. showing that the vaccines do have a reduced efficacy against those strains. So with the Novavax, for example, it was over 95% effective. um, So similar to Pfizer, against the regular strain, but that dropped down to 89% when you included the UK strain. And in South Africa, it was much lower. It was about 60% effective. And if you included the people in South Africa who had HIV infection, it was 49% effective. Wow. Um, So that's telling you two things. It's telling you There is vaccine escape, particularly in the South African strain to a lesser degree in the UK strain, which remember only has the one region of mutation, whereas the South African strain has three. This will probably apply to the Brazil strain as well, though we haven't seen any data on that Mm -hmm. yet. Um, And secondly, it's telling us that immunosuppressed um, people are going to need better vaccines because they, they won't respond as well. We've seen that from the South African data. And does that change at all our landscape? I know you said it's a good thing. We are rolling forward uh, a vaccine rollout. How does that protect us from these strains? Well, uh, the thing that's going to protect us against these strains is primarily our border control, keeping the borders closed and maintaining hotel quarantine and protecting everyone working in hotel quarantine to the maximum. And they are in that phase 1A priority group who are going to get Pfizer vaccine. Um, I I don't know the extent of um, who's classified as 1A, whether it's, you know, remember we've had cases in people who are driving the shuttle you know from the airport Mm. to the hotel i don't know if they're going to be covered in 1a that's not clear to me um so there's still potential for these mutant strains to leak into the community if um everyone working at the border is not fully protected the other part of the protection is ventilation and um n95s and that has not been addressed because our guidelines still deny that airborne transmission is important Um, So as long as we deny that airborne transmission is important, our hands are tied in the sense that we can't actually address airborne transmission when, you know, it's pretty clear airborne transmission is the most important mode of transmission of this virus. And you're speaking in terms of the hotel quarantine itself. Yeah, that's where these strains are going to come into the country. They're going to come in through the hotel quarantine, through the international border. And, And you're having a real concern about the ventilation within the hotels and the fact that N95s are actually not regularly being used. Yeah, we we don't have any acknowledgement of airborne transmission in our guidelines, not being a major (laughs) mode of transmission. And therefore, we don't have any policy or protocol on ventilation and respiratory protection in hotel quarantine. Um, You know, we know from the South Australian outbreak last year that they measured the ventilation in the corridors and it was very poor. 
a lot of buildings don't comply with current mm. ventilation standards. Only buildings built in the last five years mm -hmm. would comply with current ventilation standards. So uh, we, we don't even select facilities for hotel quarantine based on the adequacy of their ventilation. So there's a big missing piece in that border control issue. I mean, it's sort of slightly digressing from the question of vaccines, but particularly with the possibility of vaccine escape, mutants, I think the other modes of prevention are really, really important right now for us. Okay, so I, I'm actually seeing a very weird picture happening here. What you're really saying is that in Australia, where we have incredibly low figures to zero, except for Western Australia, our biggest issue is border control. And we have seen the number of leakage that has happened across Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth. And you're telling me that one of the big issues and why it's leaking from these hotels is not just personal contact between staff and the travellers, but that hotels are chosen without regard to the capacity to meet ventilation standards. And that because we still don't actually have airborne transmission down as a major mode of transmission, there's no real requirement to A, care about ventilation or use N95 masks. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. So there's consequences. You know, every policy decision has consequences and the consequences of denying the importance of airborne transmission at a, at a policy guideline level is that the way to prevent that transmission is not addressed. Um, just thinking about it, it's like a gaping hole in our strategy because um, we rely so much on a vaccine. It, it seems as if the vaccine don't really prevent you from infection. At least we don't have data to support that. Uh, we, that we don't have data. I mean, I might just touch on that briefly. We don't have data on that. The AstraZeneca trial, the interim results published in December last year in The Lancet do provide data on asymptomatic infection mm -hmm. and the efficacy against asymptomatic infection of the AstraZeneca vaccine is pretty low. So overall, in preventing infection, the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to be probably, you know, you can calculate it from the data they provided in the interim analysis mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be probably 38%, 40% in that vicinity against preventing any infection. The, we don't have that same data for Pfizer and Moderna. However, the Moderna FDA submission in the US does have some data that shows that it looks like it's quite a bit better than the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing asymptomatic infection. Mm -hmm. But until we see all those data published and able to be compared head to head, um, there's still a lot of uncertainty. In that case, are we putting more eggs in the vaccine basket than in ensuring that nothing escapes out of the hotel quarantine basket, which seems to be a far more important source of uh, risk to Australia? It is. I mean, the international border is the number one risk to Australia. And um, there's much more COVID around in the world today than there was in March last year when we started doing this, and even in December last year. So the the statistical probability of infected people coming in is much higher. So really, you know, and, and to be fair, there has been a lot of attention given to that. And Australia does have, you know, on the one hand, hotel quarantine is where these cases leak, but mm. it's also hotel quarantine is also one of the big success stories of Australia. It's a really yes. important part of 
of our strategy. Looking at this kind of strategies then, uh, there's been recent talk about how digital vaccination certificates can open up borders. Talk us through this. Um, look, it is possible. We've certainly got um, a precedent with yellow fever vaccination. If you, you know, if you travel to a yellow fever endemic area, you, ha- you can't come back into your country without a um, certificate showing that you've had the vaccination. So I think we can expect um, something similar in the future for travel. And probably, though, it will be ranked by vaccine or rated by vaccine because there clearly is quite a big difference in efficacy between different mm-hmm. vaccines. Um, so I think you'd probably have to be showing evidence of what vaccine you had, how many doses, etc. Mm-hmm. And of course, it'll, it'll also depend on um, the, the final data that we get to see on prevention of all infection by the vaccines. Raina, do you mind if I just go back to the vaccine rollout? Um, I understand that um, in most other countries in the world, uh, the vaccines have been given emergency use approval and that uh, our TGA has been the first country, I think, to give the vaccines a full approval. It, what, what really is the difference and how can we be so confident about the full approval? Um, so in the full approval, they'd be looking at, um, I mean, the process is, is similar. I think in an emergency approval, they'd give some leeway to uncertainty when there's data pending mm-hmm. um, and so on. But, um, you know, WHO itself has given emergency approval to the Pfizer vaccine, for example, mm-hmm. um, which we've got full approval for now. Um, they, they do look at the phase three published data, but they also look at any additional data that the company gives to them, which may not be uh, available publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some countries, they do make that data public. But uh, yes, so we're not quite sure what the data is that mm-hmm. uh, the TGA has seen. Okay. So they have their eyes and things we don't know about. Uh, potentially, yeah. Now... What about the role of rapid testing uh, as an addition to our um, armamentarium? So rapid testing is useful in a lot of settings because it gives you an answer quickly. Um, you know, for example, if you wait for the... T- we've got a pretty quick turnaround of the PCR testing in, in Australia, well, certainly in New South Wales, you know. You, you get a result within 24 hours generally. But to be able to get a test within, you know, 15 minutes to 20 minutes to half an hour um, also reduces that uh, potential for someone who's infectious to go on and infect other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, at the international border, that's, that's a, a good use for rapid mm-hmm. tests, um, whether it's for disembarking passengers going into ho- hotel quarantine or, uh, I mean, they're getting tested anyway, mm-hmm. but the rapid test... Um, you know, would give you, I think even in general practice, there's probably um, a role for it. If somebody comes in who's got, you know, respiratory symptoms and um, for the practice itself, it's useful to know so that you can mitigate um, the risk to everybody else in that practice. I I read a recent article in Matscape And I can't remember this man's name, but he did say, even if the vaccines were only 70% sensitive, but if 50% of the population would do a test 
every morning when they brush your teeth, every, every four mornings when they brush your teeth, you can effectively um, bring the R uh, rate below one, even in America. What do you think of that? I just think it's it's not a it's not <laughs> it's not a sensible strategy. You know, mm. it's the blanket testing is the kind of knee-jerk reaction of people who don't really understand how to control epidemic diseases. <laughs> you do need to test. You need to test people in a targeted way, people who are at high risk of being infected. So whether they're return travellers, contacts mm, yeah. of cases, etc. But blanket testing is not likely to yield a lot of um, additional benefit. I mean, in the US, for example, you know, things are so chaotic there, you know, there's so much disease around that, um, you know, I've heard from people I've spoken to there, people who get a positive test, there's no follow-up, nobody contacts them, mm. nobody tells them what to do. It's just, you know, <laughs> they're told they're positive and that's that. So I think you've got to think about, you know, in a, in a setting where there's a lot of community trends, uh, certainly there'd be no case for it whatsoever in Australia, mm. uh, somewhere where there's a lot of community transmission, you have to have the infrastructure to actually meaningfully fully follow up. But mm. really yeah. your best bang for the buck is to pursue the contacts aggressively and countries like the UK and, and the US have effectively abandoned contract tracing. It's not happening, you know, mm. in lots of places. Um, that's, that's really what they need to be doing. Contact tracing and quarantining those contacts so they cannot go on to infect the next bunch of people waiting for people to get infected and then testing them all it's mm. just not the right public health strategy where do you think they're going to end up the u.s and the uk well the u.s um things are looking pretty hopeful uh you know they've um the new administration has enacted the defense production act which allows them to repurpose manufacturing to make mm -hmm critical medical supplies and equipment, et cetera, to produce them. So things like masks, respirators, ventilators, uh, and so on. Um, and, you know, the CDC is no longer bound and gagged and silenced. Mm. Um, you know, the response isn't being run by a radiologist anymore. So uh, with all due <laughs> yep. respect to radiologists, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to walk into PRP and offer to read their CT scans, you know, because mm, I'm mm. not very good at it. But um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, radiologists running the pandemic. So they've gone from a very low base mm. to now having, you know, the CDC, which actually has a lot of expertise, uh, allowing them to lead the response. So I think, and the vaccine effort has really ramped up. You mm. know, I saw a graph um, just today, I think, on the number of doses being delivered and it's really um so i think there's things could will turn around there and our nearest neighbor indonesia any news of them well they have started out started their vaccine rollout they're using a slightly different strategy in that they are prioritizing young adults mm. um you know if you prioritize young adults you'll have more impact on transmission but no no impact on deaths right. so by prioritizing older people you'll reduce the deaths but in Indonesia, it's a very young population. It's not like Australia. We have an aging population. Uh, so it may make sense to actually um, vaccinate young people first to get, a, uh, get some epidemic control. I don't know what their vaccine supply is like. I know they're using the, um, one of the Chinese vaccines. I think it's Sinovac or Sinopharm. Yeah, yeah. yeah they use the Sinovac, which doesn't have great efficacy. It's been 
We haven't seen the phase three trial published yet, but it's been reported to be about 50% effective. Mm. So that, that, that data, I think, came from Brazil, which That's could right. be influenced by this P1 mutation in Brazil. Right. So it might, be, might have better efficacy somewhere like Indonesia. Oh, good point. Now, Raina, as we sort of head towards the end of this podcast, um, a quick question now, just summary. What is the ultimate aim or goal of our vaccine strategy? You did say in Indonesia that basically looking at reducing transmission, not death. What is our aim, end game in Australia? Well, I think the end game should and could be achieving herd immunity. The government mm -hmm. has said um, they are aiming for herd immunity, but they've said, you know, we've got this AstraZeneca vaccine, we'll give everyone that, and then when something better comes along, we'll try for herd immunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's unlikely that the AstraZeneca vaccine is good enough to achieve herd immunity, um, but it'll prevent death and serious infection, which is mm -hmm. good. I think um, to achieve herd immunity, you actually need to be purposeful and um, plan around it. So you have to get the vaccine with the highest possible efficacy and you have to vaccinate mm -hmm. as many people as possible. If you've got a vaccine that's 90% effective, you can achieve herd immunity with 66% of the population uh, vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have any trial data on children under 16 yet, which is why children under 16 are generally not getting vaccinated in many countries. Mm -hmm. um, those trial data will come, but you know, about 20% of the population is under 18 So in Australia. So you can still achieve 66% of people vaccinated by vaccinating adults. Um, if you get, you know, 90% of adults vaccinated, mm -hmm. even without vaccinating kids. So it really depends on the efficacy against all infection. And um, if you look at the kind of drop in the AstraZeneca vaccine from symptomatic to all infection and apply that to Pfizer and Moderna, you may end up with a vaccine that's about 80% 80, 80 effective against any infection. And that is still um, feasible to, mm -hmm. to achieve herd immunity, but you probably have to wait until we can vaccinate children as well. Mm -hmm. uh, some final words on the mutant strains in various countries? Yeah, so it is a concern. I mean, having said that, any vaccine can be revised to match a mutant strain, mm -hmm. um, but it's it'll be a perpetual game of catch-up, and what we really need to do is stop transmission because it's transmission that provides a selective pressure to drive these mutations. So um, we should be aiming to stop transmission. And uh, that, that argument is being used in the US now, saying, you know, the best thing, uh, Anthony Fauci has been saying it, the best thing we can do is vaccinate everyone and get, a contr get control of this, stop the transmission, and then that'll stop the risk of mutate, more mutations emerging. Okay. And now... Stopping a transmission, two issues, uh, just your last words on it. When will we start taking airborne transmission really seriously? And second question, how better can we do our hotel quarantine? So airborne transmission, I can't answer that. You'd have to ask the people who are writing the guidelines. All I can say is Australia is kind of lagging behind most other countries mm -hmm. on this front. Most, you know, even CDC in the US has infographics and stuff on ventilation so the community understands what they can do mm -hmm. to reduce their risk you know here 
the general community thinks if you wash your hands singing happy birthday twice, you'll be right, mm -hmm. you know, when clearly that's not going to help you much at all with this virus. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, the second question was? Hotel quarantine, hotel uh, the quarantine. risks and how can we do it better? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's already been done pretty well um, in the sense that travellers are getting tested. Um, I think what we need to do is address ventilation so that facilities are selected on the basis of a certain criteria they have to meet on ventilation and that ventilation continues to be measured and that people working in that space use an N95. Raina, I just think you've taken us up to date very well. Thank you very much. Uh, if any new changes happen, I'm sure I'd just be really wanting to hear from you. Thanks, David. Hope no, thank helpful. you for your time. That was very helpful. You have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye, Raina. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tomorrow's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.